With me on the line is John Sledge from Mobile, Alabama, and he has written a book entitled The Gulf of Mexico, A Maritime History. John, welcome back to the journal. Thank you, Walter. It's a real pleasure to, to hear your voice and to, to be back virtually, at least, in South Carolina. Well, we're, we're glad to have you back. And how about the origins of, of this book? I know you've done work with waterways, but the Gulf of Mexico is a pretty big topic. Yeah, you know, I've always uh, loved the Gulf since I was a, a child. It just was so romantic and exotic to me. And of course, my though I grew up in central Alabama, I was actually born in Florida. My dad taught and finished his PhD at the University of Florida. So we, we moved up to Montevallo, Alabama in 1962. But we'd always vacation uh, either at the Gulf in, say, Panama City or Destin uh, or down in Mobile to visit family. And of course, Mobile was a place apart from the rest of Alabama and the, the higher south. It, it was you know, salt air uh, that you breathed in and the swaying moss and just the oak canopied streets and the marvelous architecture and cast iron. And it just was a city very much influenced and shaped by the sea. And my grandmother uh, made the most wonderful shrimp gumbo. She lived in Georgia Cottage, which was a, a marvelous antebellum home out on Spring Hill Avenue. And uh, Augusta Evans Wilson had lived there as a young woman. She was one of the most famous Victorian authoresses out of the South, very active in the mid to late 19th century. So for mo me, Mobile and specifically the coast were just filled with history and with architecture and artifacts. And the people were more colorful and outrageous. And you could go down to Fort Morgan or Fort Gaines at the mouth of Mobile Bay and look out on the open Gulf and see lighthouses and big ships coming in and unloading uh, up in the city. And it just, I was fascinated by that link to a broader world uh, that you just didn't get so much, at least in the mid-1960s up around the Birmingham area. Let's verbally describe for our listeners, when we talk about the Gulf of Mexico, of course, immediately people think maybe about Tampa, about Mobile, New Orleans, Galveston, but you're really talking about the entire Gulf Basin, and you had that marvelous aerial photograph, I think it was from the National Geographic, of what the Gulf looks like. So yeah, the, actually, the cover photograph was taken in 2019 by an astronaut aboard the International Space Station. And what I love about it is it doesn't show Florida. It, it's really showing, say, from New Orleans west around down Texas toward Mexico, so it's a different perspective of the Gulf. It's not obvious that you're looking at the Gulf, you know, without Florida or Cuba or the Yucatan Peninsula to guide you. And yet it just, you do get this sense of sweep and vastness. And so, yes, I, w I wanted to look not just at the American sea, the, the Gulf as it shaped and influenced the United States and vice versa, but how the entire basin had developed through, through time and that would entail, you know, three national histories, uh, Mexico and Cuba as well. And, you know, beginning with Native Americans that, that inhabited the basin. Technically, the Gulf's actually part of the Atlantic Basin. That, that's how geographers and oceanographers consider it. The Gulf and the Caribbean are, are part of the Atlantic. But if you look at the Gulf, you know, in that sort of great pocketed sea with Yucatan Channel leading in, it's only 125 miles there in the south. And then the Florida Straits uh, between Cuba and Florida, that's only 90 or 100 miles wide. It is largely a, a lake, but you have this tremendous amount of, of tropical Caribbean water, water that flows in and then does something called the loop current. It flows down the Florida shore and then jets out through the Florida Straits. And that creates the, the world famous, of course, Gulf Stream. Um, so there's really a lot of variety and, and interest there. And, you know, it's, I don't know who figured this out, but it's 643 quadrillion gallons of water. It's a thousand miles east to west, five or 600 north to south. It's, it's actually the 10th largest body uh, of water in the world. And I, I really felt like it had been underappreciated in American history, but also even in world history. You know, we always hear about the pirates of the Caribbean and the West Indies or, or the pilgrims or California. So I wanted to bring some emphasis to the to the Gulf 
its uniquely colorful history, sort of the cross-pollination between cultures and peoples and architecture, cuisine, speech, naval architecture, and then um, really focus on a part of the world that I knew better than any other. John, two things in terms of looking at the Gulf, because every time there's a hurricane, and it seems in the last few years, most of the really bad ones have been in the Gulf as opposed to the Atlantic. But everybody talks about the Gulf being shallow, and it actually it is around the shorelines, but it's almost 3,000 fathoms deep at its deepest point, is it not? Yeah, there is a lot of continental shelf in the Gulf, and you can see that when you look at bathymetric maps, you know, a map of the seafloor for the Gulf. Roughly 38% of the Gulf's area is um, continental shelf, so it's that gently shelving slope that could be under, you know, a few feet to several dozen uh, or 100 feet of water. That wasn't always ideal from a maritime perspective because deep draft ocean vessels needed channels and harbors that were naturally deep to maneuver, at least before the era of reliable dredging. But there is a deep, deep central portion known as the Sigsby Deep. It's a good 11 or 12,000 feet at its deepest. And it's named for a sea captain named Charles Dwight Sigsby, who's most famous, of course, as the captain of the Maine uh, when it was sunk in Havana Harbor. But during the 1870s, he conducted a... Uh, oceanic survey in the Gulf. It was the first ocean basin to be systematically mapped. And it was indeed the first bathymetric map or map of the seafloor of any ocean basin in the world. And Alexander Agassiz went along with him to do the science part of the, the uh, looking at the, the sea life that they dredged up from the, the cold, muddy depths of the Gulf. But they really came up with a very clear sense of its various depths and contours and you know it doesn't just have a flat sandy bottom as you might think if you're swimming in florida it's, it's got knolls and cliffs and canyons and all kinds of fascinating things out there um, so that work was really pioneering and that's why that deepest portion is named for him and that's also why you you sort of hear about how high risk an endeavor deep oil drilling is so the deep water horizon of course impressed all of us with with what a um, kind of frontier scientific endeavor that is. They, they were drilling down at, you know, the seafloor was 5,000 feet down, and then they were drilling ten or 12,000 feet below that. As I said in the book, it was as if they had pricked a primordial Mayan god and stirred its wrath. Um, it, it's just depths that we've never uh, been used to working before, but that's where they're finding these untapped pools of of oil, uh, which is, of course, the prehistoric life that, that once flourished before the Gulf was wet. One thing that anybody that goes to the beaches on the Gulf, and I'm speaking now of the uh, primarily the Alabama and the Florida beaches, there's not enough natural beach left in Mississippi. It's all been pumped up from somewhere. It's this sugary white sand. I mean, it, it, it's so fine, you squeak when you walk. It also gets hot <laughs> as heck in the summertime. And it's quite different from the beaches on the Atlantic coast. The first time I went to the beach here in South Carolina, I thought, eh, this just looks, <laughs> you know, it doesn't look like beach that I'm used to. Right. Because that that incredible white sand is, is well, you don't find it anywhere else in this country. No, it's a, you're correct. It's it's just a glory. Uh, sugar white sand, silken sand, um, romance writers love it. And it is just so beautiful. It's really, uh, you don't find it so much in uh, Louisiana or Texas because you have so much Mississippi silt and mud that, that comes down. And, and indeed, that's why the beaches are prettier in northwest Florida is the further you get from Mobile Bay. Now, Orange Beach and Gulf Shores down on South Alabama are pretty but the beaches are even prettier as you get further to the east because you're moving away from all the mud and silt that comes out of Mobile Bay. And when you look at aerial or satellite photographs of the Gulf, it's astonishing. These great plumes of, of silt that sort of balloon out into the Gulf at certain times, you know, during floods and so forth. And there's also, of course, the famous dead zone that occurs at the mouth of the Mississippi with all the toxins and, you know, poisons that come down the Mississippi Valley it drains nearly half the country. So 
it um, it is prettier uh, in, in really than anywhere else in the country. And it's actually quartz. It came down out of the Appalachian Mountains and, you know, got recycled onto those beaches. And it's just beautiful, fine stuff. And uh, we really are uh, witnessing a prehistoric primordial process there, even though the, the sand proper that you might hold in your hand is quite recent in geologic terms. It's a, it's it's just a wonderful process to be to be privy to. Well, the the beach is beautiful and the Gulf is, but if there's no breeze, you've got problems. <laughs> you've got no seams. Yeah. For those of us who swam in the, in the Gulf many years ago, every now and then you would get sea lice. No, there are there are many terrors and irritancies for for of course children are. Uh, ignore all that. They just plunge in. But yes, yeah, sea lice are actually a little jelly, jellyfish larvae that gets between your swimsuit and your skin, and they secrete this stuff that is irritating. And then, of course, Portuguese man of war have these menacing long tentacles that just can form horrible welts if they get, particularly they get wrapped around a child. Uh, so there's certain times of the year when that kind of stuff comes in, and you, you just know to avoid the water. And if you talk about other beaches, and I'm thinking about Mobile Bay, where you really don't think of, of, of beaches, yeah. but stingrays, we called them stingarees when I was— <laughs> Stingarees. It's, it's, yeah. it's why when you walk in the bay, you shuffle your feet. Exactly. I yeah. mean, that's one of the things you learn as a child. But anyway— Yeah, there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of lore like that that, that children learn uh, growing up on the Gulf, and there's this whole— lexicon that goes with that that's unique to this place and describing those kinds of things and it 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 really is all part of our culture and even the things that are inconvenient or uncomfortable are still part of what make us unique where we live and we appreciate that when i first got the book i thought now how in the heck is john going to organize it you organized it very nicely chronologically but not chronologically you you start off with the Indian shore, and then Spanish Sea, and then Colonial Crossroads, Pirate's Haunt, King Cotton's Pond, the Violent Sea, where you talk about the military actions that had taken place around it from the war with Mexico to the Civil War to the Spanish-American War, uh, and then American Sea and Blowout, which of course deals with oil exploration. There are lots of legends, particularly about Spanish on the coast, for example, where did all those magnificent figs and oleanders come from <laughs> that pretty much cover the peninsula with Fort Morgan? The story was uh, they were planted by Isabella de Soto. <laughs> exactly. The wife of Hernando de Soto, who uh, led a very famous entrada into the southeast. He, he came into, landed near Tampa Bay and wove a, a destructive path through Georgia. I think he came into, I don't know if he came through South Carolina. He did. Uh, he did. We don't really know exactly where he went, but he covered eight or nine southern states and then, of course, famously buried in the Mississippi. But the story goes that his wife, who, who he actually made governor of Cuba, she was the first female governor of, of Cuba, um, that she, when he didn't return, she actually accompanied a fleet that went looking for him, led by um, a captain named Maldonado, and that they landed in Mobile Bay, and she was sort of wandering along the Fort Morgan Peninsula there, and her nickname for him was Leander. And she was going, oh, Leander, oh, Leander, and, and her tears watered the soil, and, and that she planted a fig tree, and so all of that became supposedly the reason that there are fig trees on Dauphin Island and oleanders along the coast. And it's all nonsense. It was made up by a uh, sort of a con man guide that Fort Morgan named Hatchet Chandler in the 1950s. But it's amazing how tenacious those stories are. And they are fun to tell. And they do hold a grain of truth, which was the, you know, the impact and the significance of that Spanish presence on the northern Gulf was was pretty transformational, certainly for the Native Americans. And um, so it's it's a fun story. And interestingly enough, in Havana, uh, there's a famous sculpture called La Giraldia, which is, means she who turns. And it's a it's a wind vane of a, a one a young woman. It was done in the 17th century. It's metal and it's Isabella. And and her uh, leg is rather alluringly uh, thrust out and partly bared. And so supposedly, you know, she's 
she turns with the winds and and is often staring toward the northern shore where her uh, true love disappeared. So the Gulf is full of that kind of stuff, which is a mix of fact and fiction and it's just all part of the fun. John, we have to pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I'm talking with John Sledge about his book, The Gulf of Mexico, A Maritime History. Well, John, we were talking about Hatchet Chandler and his little gems from Fort Morgan, which is still on my bookshelf, by the way. Oh, wonderful. But there are legends all across the Gulf. There are legends from Cuba, the the legends about the Mayans and what they did at sea. Are- no, it, it, I mean, yes, you're, you're right. I, I, any given piece of shoreline has its own unique traditions. And of course, in a, a broad survey volume such as this, it's impossible to cover all of them. But I, for instance, in dealing with the Native Americans, I thought, well, my God, there were dozens, if not hundreds of tribes across the millennia before the, the white men got here. So who I picked? Well, I chose the Maya because they were so important down in the Yucatan uh, with their stone cities and temples. And of course, it was they that the Spanish first clashed with. And then, of course, the Aztecs. And then I deal with the Mobile Indians in the Mobile River Delta around Mobile Bay. And then the Calusa down in southwest Florida, who who were just amazing in the way they altered their landscape to, uh, you know, to be in harmony with the sea and fishing and all of that. But the Maya actually had this uh, intriguing legend uh, of Quetzalcoatl, which many of people have heard, you know, that that supposedly the the Spanish, uh, when Cortez arrived with his pale skin and and beard, the Indians assumed this was the return of Quetzalcoatl. And it actually corresponded with a prominent date in the Aztec calendar. So uh, the Indians believed that Quetzalcoatl was a warrior god, a, a winged serpent, that he had become human and that when he left, he he went to the east toward the rising sun, promising to return. And one of the things I found fascinating are the cultural similarities between the Mesoamericans and the Indians of the southeast. And I'm sure this would include the Carolinas as well. You know, the temple mounds that were mm-hmm. so common in the Mississippian period, the, the fascinating uh, body ornament, the gorgets, the pointed pouches, the weaponry, the, the top knots and ha- uh, ear spools and uh, the rattlesnake motif you see at Moundville up around Tuscaloosa, Alabama, just this incredible influence of Mesoamerican art. I mean, these look like Mayan or Aztec motifs. And so it's just obvious that that there had to have been some kind of contact or cult- cultural influence. The whole beans, corn and squash triad comes out of Mesoamerica as well. But archaeologists, historians haven't been able to as yet document any kind of definitive contact. You know, there have been sort of cranks and crackpots who claim they've found, you know, Mayans uh, have settled around Atlanta or something like that. But in terms of real credibility and scientific proof, we just haven't found it yet. And I, I, I firmly believe that there must have been some kind of a maritime connection because that that stretch between Texas and, you know, the Southeast, Mexico is so vast and forbidding that a land journey really seems impossible. And so it would make sense to me, at least, that perhaps a, a load of Mayans in a seagoing canoe got blown off course and somehow ended up on a Southeastern shore. And here's chocolate and here's yucca. And, you know, they, they really would have seemed like gods to the local Indians here. And, and that perhaps that would help explain, or perhaps it was an itinerant trader, a figure like Coco Pelli that you see out west so much with his little flute and his backpack, you know, coming through the forest, announcing this gust of cosmopolitanism from a far off empire. Well, now there the, just had to have been some kind of connection. Well, now the Mayas did have very large canoes, that, not the, the typical birch bark or dugout canoe we think of, but actually something that was close to being ocean going. Oh, yeah. No, they were eight feet wide. They could carry 30 or 40 warriors, and they had a high prow and stern piece that had been added so they could manage a head sea or a following sea. There's no evidence that that they had sails. We think the Calusa in Florida might have. They had a catamaran-style craft, but even that isn't definitive. You know, Columbus famously encountered a, a, a boatload of, of Mayan out in the Gulf of Honduras, and they were completely flabbergasted when they saw the Spanish caravel and these bearded white men who smelled bad. That that was nothing they'd ever encountered before. 
And Columbus talked about how their canoe had a big platform in the center, and that's where the women and children were sitting. And they had a, a, a reed awning over it and that they were trading, you know, shirts and weapons. And uh, so they, they clearly were using the sea uh, as a way to travel between islands and peoples. Uh, obviously, Cuba was settled from the sea. Um, so there's just so much there that we, we don't yet know, but it's, it's fascinating to contemplate. I hate to ask authors this, but you've got very rich chapters. We could spend the rest of the show talking about Indian shore or colonial crossroads. Which one would you like to zero in on next? Well, it might be fun to talk about Lafitte because everybody loves pirates. And as uh, as Harnett Kane, a famous writer in New Orleans in the 30s and 40s, wrote, the uh, pirates and their treasure chests continue to cast a shadow over the Gulf. So we all think about pirates and that kind of history, and it certainly colors the historical background of the Gulf. Well, you had Lafitte, but I, I guess when I think about pirates in the Western Hemisphere, I think about going down to the Caribbean. Although they clearly, we know they operated off the South Atlantic coast, they were both oh, yeah. sources of income to South Carolinians and also threats to commerce. I mean, Absolutely. I mean, Blackbeard met his, his end <laughs> in the Atlantic, not in the Caribbean. So other than Lafitte, how long were pirates hanging around? Well, what's interesting about Lafitte is is he's so so far beyond the golden age of piracy, which is, you know, say 1650 to 1710 or something. Uh, I think that's about when Blackbeard died. You know, Lafitte's operating in the early 1800s and, in fact, uh, is important because he helped Andrew Jackson defeat the British in the Battle of New Orleans, wonderfully portrayed by Yul Brynner in the movie The Buccaneer by Cecil B. DeMille's great movie. But you had other pirates as well that were even earlier. Uh, the English a- Admiral Hawkins laid siege to Veracruz in the 16th century, Mexico. He had been blown around coming out of the Caribbean. He'd been trading slaves down there, and he anchored at Veracruz. And the Spanish thought it was their treasure fleet that had arrived. And no, it was uh, <laughs> Hawkins and four or five other ships. And so they, um, you know, a vicious harbor fight ensued. Uh, Lawrenceo was a very famous pirate in Gulf history, and in fact, he helped the French find Mobile Bay. He, Iberville met him in what we'd call uh, Santo Domingo now, down Hispaniola then, and he knew that Lawrenceo had, uh, you know, sailed around the Caribbean and the Gulf and been a fearsome pirate. But you know, pirates were always looking for work, and Iberville said, "Well, I, I don't know the Gulf Shore. Why don't you come as a pilot and help?" help us find these places. And so it was actually Lawrenceo, the notorious pirate. He was actually Dutch. He may have been mixed race. The, the Spanish called him El Grife, which connotes a, a mixed race individual. But we know he had this flamboyant blonde mustache. So he was a memorable figure and had a fearsome reputation. Uh, so Lawrenceo led the French uh, to Mobile Bay in Pensacola and showed him where the mouth of the Mississippi was uh, before returning uh, to the West Indies. So it's it's interesting that a pirate actually played a role in founding Mobile in 1700s. One of the things that is embedded throughout your, your book is the natural environment and humankind's impact on that from you, you mentioned the Calusas, and they change they changed their natural environment up to oil exploration, and then of course, every time you have a storm, it yeah. changes the coastline. One of the things I did I didn't really want to write an environmental history, and in fact, I, I felt relieved when Jack Davis's just marvelous "The Gulf: The Making of an American Sea" came out in 2017 because it actually won a Pulitzer Prize. It's, it's a marvelous book. But Jack really dealt primarily with the American Gulf Coast. It's a lyr- lyrical, eloquent book, but but largely uh, a natural history of the Gulf and uh, nature at the center of the story, which is is very appropriate. And Jack told a lot of those kind of environmental uh, uh, tales. So I, I felt more liberated to, to, to speak even more broadly and, and, and not worry about covering everything because any bay or inlet you, you look at has had issues with some kind of pollutant down the, the recent decades. But yes, I was able to really focus on oil uh, and gas exploration in the Gulf, which has just been so huge. 
And then also the issue of sea level rise and the loss of coastline there, particularly along the Louisiana coast, and how that impacts one particular people, the Biloxi Chittimacha Choctaw Indians, who are uh, a, a real small tribe of Native Americans there down at a place called Isle de Jean Charles, Louisiana, in, T- in Terrebonne Parish. And their, their island has literally been disappearing out from under them. And so they're the first group of people in the U.S. to have actually been moved by the federal government, given $50 million to do it, to be relocated a little more further inland because of the prevalence of sea, sea level rise down there and flooding. And, you know, oil and gas exploration has had a lot to do with degrading the marshes and the natural barriers and coastlines down there so that now when hurricanes come roaring in, there's less natural barrier to slow them down. That's why Hurricane Katrina was so bad in New Orleans. You didn't have all those marshes that you had once had decades before that would slow it down. And uh, you know, now it just had nothing but warm water to feed on, and, and, and the result was uh, a catastrophe. Well, one of my favorite books about the Gulf is Abby Salinger's Island in the Storm, which deals with that mm. great hurricane just before the Civil War, where oh, uh, there was that yeah. one wonderful resort, which was the place to go in the 1850s. And then, of course, it was completely wiped out, and the, the whole landscape and that part of yeah. Louisiana was changed. Yeah, there's another wonderful novel about that called Cheetah by Lafcadio O'Hearn uh, that deals with that. It was off the Louisiana coast, Last Island. But many more people will have heard of Galveston and the Great Storm of 1900 that killed, my God, something like 8,000 people. Uh, and there was a wonderful book about that some years ago called Isaac Storm. Uh, so, yes, they, the hurricanes have had and continue to have a profound effect on the shore. In your day job, you are chief architectural historian for the city of Mobile, and you you mentioned sea level rise. One thing I have noticed in going to Magnolia Cemetery is there are places where you can't walk anymore unless you're wearing waders. Yeah. No, Magnolia is notorious for that. There's just soil doesn't perk there, and it— after a rain, it can just be boggy for, for months. What's odd is that's fairly high ground. You have a very low ridge there that comes up to about 30 feet or so. But yes, drainage has been a problem in the city of Mobile. Not as badly, say, as New Orleans, but because Mobile's at sea level. Uh, New Orleans is famously below. But Mobile has had to deal with flooding issues uh, for much of its municipal history. And that's been exacerbated again by wrong-headed development, the channelization of creeks and bayous, uh, the filling in of rag swamp to develop the malls in the 1960s. So whereas in the 19th century, rainwater could just be absorbed like a sponge by these natural filters, uh, now it just runs off, sheets off this concrete and floods city streets. And despite you know millions spent doing drainage and ditching and trying to improve all of that, it's uh, it's very much a, a continual battle. And, and you see that in Magnolia and where they're not trying to drain it. And it, it's it's the mosquitoes. there are horrible. We call them B-52s. They're the they're, they're bigger than any mosquito I've encountered anywhere in the world. And that includes the Arkansas River uh, or the Arkansas Delta there. And they're just they're terrible. So it, it's one of those consequences of of ham-fisted environmental development that we've we've had to pay. When the Gulf became an American sea, you're really talking about the turn of the last century, and particularly with the development of banana imports. I'd, you've got that wonderful map showing where the bananas were coming in. Of course, Mobile and New Orleans were both major banana ports. The whole story of the, the fruit trade is, is so fascinating because that really gave Mobile an, an aura of a tropical port in the early 1900s and on through really the 1960s and, and 70s. And United Fruit Company, of course, was one of the most famous enterprises led by a guy named uh, Samuel Zamuri, the banana man, who, who was a self-made millionaire, literally worked his way up, just began picking up bananas dropped along the railroad track that were about to turn and taking them into town and selling them to people. So it's a it's a fascinating story. The old banana docks were a colorful place where 
you know, Eugene Walter, Mobile's Renaissance man, has written of, you know, monkeys being found on banana stems and tarantulas. And uh, so it was just this whole exotic connection to the Caribbean and the Gulf that was uh, that would be unknown to many modern residents of the city. You also had the lumber trade. You had regular uh, lumber ships going down, schooners, uh, sailing schooners into the 1930s, sailing in Mobile Bay down to Cuba and and the Caribbean. And then we, of course, infamously, fire ants came into the United States through the Port of Mobile in the 1930s off a freighter, probably out of Argentina, carrying lumber that just had some dirt in the hold. And that's how the fire ants got here. So, so seaports have always introduced both good things and bad things into into their locales. And, and the Gulf has very much been a conduit for all of that. In terms of the 20th century, a lot of people, when they, you know, I've talked to military historians, they talk about the sub-warfare, submarine warfare in the Atlantic and the importance of American submarines in the Pacific. They don't realize how active German submarines were in the Gulf. Yeah, absolutely. I, that that was a story I knew a little bit about, but what was fascinated to, to really learn about further Uh particularly in the early phases of the war, uh, 1942 to 1943, those six months there at the, on the cusp of those two years, the U-boat captains called the happy times because the Americans really had no effective countermeasures. They weren't convoying. Lights were blazing along the shore. Ships could be silhouetted offshore. So these U-boats would wait out in the Gulf off the sea lanes, particularly those leading up to cities like Tampa, Mobile, and Mississippi River, and I believe in the latter uh, portion of 1942, they actually sank more tonnage in the Gulf of Mexico than all the other theaters of the war combined. Um, the Americans realized pretty quick they better figure this out. And so they instituted really strict measures to shut down lights along the shore and convoy and, you know, uh, loose lips sh sink ships campaigns. And. Papa Hemingway, of course, who Ken Burns has just done a wonderful uh, profile of in, on PBS, uh, was living in Havana at the time, and he wanted to get in on the action. And he had a fishing boat called the Pilar, and so he actually proposed to the American consul in Havana in Cuba that he take the Pilar out into the Florida Straits and lure a U-boat to the surface under the guise of selling them fresh fish and then as soon as they surfaced, he would uh, drop hand grenades down the conning tower and machine gun the crew. Fortunately, he never got a chance to test this. The world would have been deprived of his literary genius, um, I'm, I'm sure. But, it, yeah, it's a whole aspect of the Gulf that and, – and, and indeed, uh, you know, broadening it out into smuggling, that, that's been a very old story going from the feats to the pot smugglers to the human trafficking it continues to be at the center of a lot of sometimes ugly things. And it's interesting, in the early years of the war, there was great concern on both the Atlantic and the Pacific coasts. And at one time, there literally was nothing that could have stopped an invasion of, of the Gulf. It no, was, our, our, and still, I mean, our, our back door, so to speak, China has really been ramping up its investment in Cuba flying sorties into uh, Gulf airspace. So this sense of the Gulf being a completely unchallenged American lake is, is not a guarantee. And uh, certainly it's something I know military planners have paid attention to. Well, they used to talk about the soft underbelly of Europe. Well, the soft yeah. un underbelly of the United States is the Gulf. Well, I was struck. I went to Cuba back in October of 19, and I, I remember going to the uh, Hotel Nacional and we were right there on the Florida Straits in this, this beautiful site that didn't actually been run by the mafia in the 40s and 50s. Magnificent building. Uh, and, you know, there were portraits of Che and Putin and sort of all the American demons were the heroes there. But what was astonishing, we were eating out on the grounds of the hotel and there were still the concrete remnants of these missile silos that had been built during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I thought, wow, what a provocation. I mean, here they are right on the hotel grounds, right there on the edge of the Florida Straits, you know, 95 miles from Miami. It was, uh, it was an astonishing moment in history and uh, extremely lucky for the world that we dodged a catastrophe then. Well, from the Native Americans until 
well even into the 21st century, folks who lived on the Gulf have lived off it as fishermen, as oystermen, as shrimpers, what have you. But that is something that I really see it's almost disappeared. I mean, there are, there are no oyster beds in Mobile Bay, really. You're absolutely right. In fact, they, they did, though, open the bay again to oystering. It, it's been some time, uh, you know, besides pollution and fresh and or saltwater incursion in the wrong amounts. A lot can go wrong with oystering. But I remember as a child, you know, driving down to Dolphin Island, that long causeway that led out to the bridge over the island, uh, over Grants Pass, just seeing, you know, dozens of oyster boats lined wow. up along the canals. Uh, little wooden affairs that, that look so fascinating where these guys would go out in these things and, you know, broad shoulders. They tong these these oysters, uh, which are such a delicacy uh, from the Gulf. And yet now you go down there and you, you really just don't see any. It's so hard to make a living. There's, you know, people that had, have been doing that will say, you know, you've got frivolous lawsuits. Opioid addiction among the deckhands is a you know is something you have to worry about. You got too much government regulation. Uh, shrimpers have really had a lot of uh, complaints about TEDs. Even charter fishermen say that the red snapper season is too short. And what was encouraging, you know, was when the Gulf oil spill happened and they shut down any kind of fishing in the Gulf. How robust those fish stocks became, they really became roaring back. And so you get the sense that, man, if if we all just left it alone for a while, the Gulf would really heal itself pretty quickly. Uh, but you're absolutely right. It's it's never been easy to make a living from the Gulf, and it's harder now, in fact, than it than it ever has been. Well, and and of course the shrimping communities from Texas all all the way around to northern Florida. Those fleets, in terms of size, have just gone to almost nothing. Biolobattery is not anything like what oh, yeah. it used to be. No, but it, it does still exist. And, of course, what's fascinating there is is you've had this Asian immigration in the last you know, 40 to 50 years, particularly since the uh, Vietnam War. And so that, you know, that introduced yet another um, ethnic element into the Gulf. There have always been these blends of people, Native Americans and Caucasian and African and you know, now Asian. And so all these different groups bring a particular something to it, and it ends up becoming part of the mix and and being a uniquely Gulf Coast thing. So shrimping is a fascinating industry. And of course, Gulf shrimp are, in my opinion, uh, the best in the world. And um, I hope hope that too can, can survive. Well, it's interesting up here in the southeast. They'll talk about Gulf shrimp. That's you know there, even though we have wonderful shrimp off the coast here. Uh, oh sure, you know shrimp and grits. Yes, yes, uh, which we didn't have in in Mobile. It's a big thing up here. No, that's become a thing here. Which I is, know it's you know, become a, it's become a thing, but it it was it wasn't seventy five years ago when I was growing up. No. No, no, but but what's fun too is uh, you know Mobile supposedly invented West Indies salad, and fried crab claws are supposedly another uh, local gift to the cuisine. We we know gumbo uh, is distinct to different places. Uh, you know okra uh, is is so important to it. We, we think okra that gumbo rather might even be an African word, a, a genuine African word in the lexicon. Uh, but of course, in New Orleans, you have these andouilles and. You have a lot of sausage and gumbos over there. Influence of the German coast, a section of the Mississippi River settled by Germans. Whereas here around Mobile Bay, a more genuine seafood gumbo is what you have. I'm sure Carolina has its own variant. Uh, So it's fascinating to see how people sort of manifest their culture in different ways through, through cuisine. John, we need to pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with John Sledge about his book, The Gulf of Mexico, A Maritime History. And when we talk about maritime history, we need to talk about shipping and how that has changed over time, and clearly the age of sail, certainly the 18th and 19th centuries. But you've pointed out that up until World War II, sail vessels were not uncommon. Yeah, no, I, I remember as a boy being charmed when my dad would talk about seeing lumber schooners in the Gulf or, or Mobile Bay into the 1930s in, in his boyhood. So, yes, sail power was, was very common. 
And in fact, some vessels are even going back to it. But it, uh, one of the things, too, that I wanted to do in terms of making this a maritime history was not just to talk about ships as, you know, quaint, mm-hmm. quaint models that, you know, have all these fascinating flags and things, but, but really to see ships as carriers of culture and civilization as well, that when the Spanish came in, when the Indians used their dugout canoes, uh, when the cotton packets sailed out of Mobile to, to New York and on to uh, Liverpool, that, that these all played their role in uh, furthering human in- intervention, uh, or rather human invention, uh, economy, and innovation, and, and learning how to develop ships that would most suit whatever particular economic need they were trying to serve. And of course, it is amazing the variety of sail that you see in the historical period, and just what a bewildering uh, world of ropes and canvas and function that that particularly new hands on whether it be a naval vessel or a merchant ship had to figure out and you know if they didn't learn quick they were going to get hit with a knotted rope by the bosun's mate so it was a an unforgiving very hard world but the the world of working sail is is quite fascinating in fact i uh, talked to one woman who had an uncle in his 90s he's sadly passed away now but she thought to record him in the 1990s about life aboard a working sailcraft out of Mobile Bay. And they made regular lumber trips to Havana. And oh, he was a colorful, salty dog. And he talked about what it was like out there. And I never will forget his description uh, on tape of, you know, being on a schooner in a, a full blown gale. His father was at the helm with a shirt tail blowing. And he just described how the vessel was going up these big 30 foot rollers and just plowing down and, and the wind was blowing to beat the band and the mass and tackle were straining and the sails were bellied out and his his father was just laughing for the the pure free joy of of being in 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 his element like that and i just thought that that really conveyed what it was like to be on a a schooner at, at full tilt in in such a beautiful way well and of course as we're talking about the Gulf as a waterway and, and as also a connector, shipping firms based on the Gulf Coast, I mean, they yes, they might go into the Atlantic, but really you talked about the, the Mobile to Havana trader. You talked about the fruit trade. There were, there were local steamship companies, Waterman, for example. Oh, uh, yeah. We all know about container ships, right? <laughs> get Absolutely. One, get one stranded in the Suez Canal. <laughs> but, but most people don't realize that containerized freight actually originated in Mobile with actually McLean Industries. They bought Waterman right. Steamship. Uh, that's that's where containerization began. It is an amazing story. Um, Malcolm McLean, a North Carolina truck driver in the 30s who would deliver his loads to these ports, these big eastern seaports, and he'd, he'd sit there for hours waiting for the stevedores to finish unloading all this brake bolt cargo, you know, with slings and pallets and hoists and pulleys. And it just seemed very time consuming and wasteful to him. So he came up with this idea of let's put everything in a box, steel box that can be plucked by a crane off the deck of a ship, put on the back of a train or a truck. Took him a while to fully evolve the idea, uh, but it really did revolutionize the world of trade. Uh, certainly, as we saw recently in the Suez Canal, when when we didn't get our pelotons in a timely fashion, and it impressed on us the importance of the global network. But seaports now are very impersonal because of container shipping; they're far more efficient. Ships aren't even in port very long, so you no longer have sailor boys from Russia or indonesia swaggering down the streets they're they're not even in town very long really long enough to get off the ship and shipping companies like that because ships aren't making money when they're sitting there they need to be transferring the cargo back and forth so container shipping uh one commentator called it the longshoreman's coffin it very much revolutionized how seaports uh operate but also tended to make them colder more impersonal and just less colorful and, and exciting. And you can certainly read the descriptions of places like New Orleans and Mobiles. I'm sure Charleston is in Savannah as well. Read about those seaports in the 1890s, for instance, or even the 1920s and 30s, 
and then go there now. And it's just hard to imagine a completely well, different world. Well, where the ship channel is, you don't need all of those anymore. Exactly. Uh, and exactly. growing up in Mobile, the area between Royal Street and the river was off limits if you were a young lad growing up because that's where the, oh, yeah. sa- the sailors hung out. Uh, you would learn dirty words down there for sure. In fact, I, I uh, in the Mobile River book, I, I, one of my favorite interviews was a deckhand uh, from the 80s. He had been a teenager and had been on a tugboat, and he talked about running into prostitutes who sometimes captains would let on to the tugboat. Imagine that today. I mean, there's a lawsuit waiting to happen. Captains would let the prostitutes onto their tugboats as they would go down to meet the ships. And then the ladies would negotiate with the sailors about where to come, you know, come to the Club Royal. Uh, when you come ashore, we'll party. Um, it's just really hard to imagine that now. Well, the seven seas was kind of notorious, too. <laughs> yeah, a boy could come of age real fast down there. Well, either that or take a tramp steamer to Havana. Right. Exactly. And, and that Havana connection was so close and common. You know, you had companies advertising winter vacations. Get on a train in Chicago where it's icy and blowing. Take a 30-hour train ride to Mobile. Get on a steamer and be in Havana within two days. And, and you're in, you know, tropical paradise. So Mobile uh, certainly played that to the hilt and, and was very, very closely tied to Cuba. Well, John, you've written a history, and historians can't see the future, uh, although people seem to think we can predict it. And certainly, looking at the history of the Gulf, we haven't learned a lot about doing bad things to wonderful natural gifts. Where do you see, what do you see about the Gulf in the next 10, 15, 20 years? Yeah, I, I know that historians sometimes chafe at getting asked that kind of questions. Somebody once asked a Chinese premier some years ago, what is the lesson of the French Revolution? And he said, it's too soon to tell. Um, <laughs> but in the case of the Gulf, yes, I, I think it's even more webbed into world trade now because the, the Panama Canal has recently been widened. Uh, ports along the Gulf, not just in the United States, like Mobile, Tampa, New Orleans, where they're deepening their channels to accommodate these larger, massive container ships, but Havana and then also Veracruz are, are very important. Um, the east-west trade route now is is really important through the Gulf of Mexico. And we saw this recently when you had those big dock worker strikes up in uh, California and the West Coast. So container ships couldn't get their cargoes in. Again, those Pelotons were getting delayed that everybody's using during the pandemic. And so the ships began rerouting through the Panama Canal and the Gulf and actually coming into Gulf ports and were actually saving time because they just couldn't moor and unload uh, on the western side. So the Gulf is um, really becoming an important alternate route for shippers. They like the costs that are associated with it. And a lot of these Gulf ports really do have uh, state-of-the-art technology to handle a lot of this stuff. And then you see new seaports being built uh, near Havana, near Veracruz, that are going to play an even larger role in trade going forward. So the Gulf's going to remain very much part of a, of a world a world network. Well, what is, what is in your future in terms of writing now? Um, I know you've still got one or two more books in you. <laughs> You're kind. There's so much work. <laughs> but I, uh, I am doing a, a book about Mobile and Havana and their long connection. Uh, and I'm working in conjunction with two photographers, one Cuban, one American, and then a Cuban historian as well. And so now that uh, the pandemic is easing and hopefully travel restrictions there will be loosening up as well, we can uh, really push that forward because the cities have such a fascinating shared history, you know, pre the revolution that I would really love to explore. And I've just found some, some fascinating things. It's, it's been a lot of fun to research and so hopefully we'll get that going very soon. All right. Well, well, well great. Again, my, my generation, there were some guys who their summer job would be they worked on tramp steamers. Yeah. Out of, out of Mobile. And then, of course, when you graduated, it was, you know, sometimes you could get a group and you could go down to get on a Waterman steamship because they did have passenger 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. And go to Havana. The problem was by the time I got to be junior in high school, Castro had come into power. Yeah. And those trips yeah. were gone. So. Uh, yeah, a lot of American boys learned some bad things in Havana, too. <laughs> you could get in a lot of trouble, still can, down there. But it's uh, it's always been a, a fascinating place and interesting to see the, the commonalities the cities have. Well, we'll all look forward to that book when it comes out. Thank you, Walter. All right. John, Alfred has given me the wind-up sign, and so I want to thank you for being back on the journal after a couple of years and uh, wish you all well in your future endeavors. Thank you so much, Walter, and and y'all keep safe and well. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It was a pleasure to have John Sledge back on the show after a couple of years. The Gulf of Mexico, in terms of general study, has been pretty much neglected. Sledge's book is a fascinating tale about the interaction of humans and the environment that's not just history. It's an integral part of our world today. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.